0: Step into my library, won't you, and have a seat by the fire. This is Jennifer Passarello from Circa19XX.com and the Circa Sunday Night Podcast. But tonight, we're not in either of those places. We're in the Vintage Century Reading Room, and I have a book to share with you that have been lost in the mists of time. Let's have a little read, shall we? Thank you for your driving all my kids away. Well, hello there. Come on in and make yourself comfortable. I've got a fire going as usual. You know, I love having a fire going while I make these recordings because it's so cozy. But here's the problem the thermostat is here in this room. So while this room gets really nice and warm, The rest of the house gets cold. I guess the answer is just not to leave this room, ever. (laughs) Because if there is anything that I absolutely hate, it's being cold. I have a pretty high tolerance for being hot. You don't really hear me complaining very often about being hot, but I have no tolerance whatsoever for being cold. I just simply can't stand it. So once I'm in here by the fire, I just don't want to leave. Well, today was a rather drab day, weather-wise, here in Kansas City. We had some drizzle and some gray skies. It was kind of depressing looking, but really it was a very lovely day nonetheless, because I had lunch with a wonderful friend of mine that I haven't seen for a couple of months, and, you know, it's always fun catching up. Now, somehow during our conversation, I can't even really remember how this happened, but We got on the topic of lifestyles, and I thought that might be an interesting thing to think about here in the reading room. My friend and I were trying to define what a lifestyle is. You know, when you're out on YouTube or, well, even television, you see all these lifestyle blogs or lifestyle shows. Everybody has a lifestyle you know, that they want to share with other people and they want to talk about. And, and you too can have this lifestyle if you follow this decorating scheme or, or whatever. So we were just kind of talking about, well, what exactly is a lifestyle? And I think where we landed is that your lifestyle is the culmination of the choices that you make. Choices on everything from, oh, how you spend your time, what you eat, what you spend your money on, the kind of environment you create for yourself. I guess that's where sort of the interior design comes in. Um, the way you present yourself to the world, the way you welcome people into your personal world. I think lifestyle also includes decisions about what you put in your head. <laughs> you know, the books you read, the movies you watch, the things you listen to. And ultimately, the sort of habits that you form. Lifestyles do kind of become habit-forming, right? They become automatic over time. You're still making choices, but you no longer think about those choices. You just act in ways that seem most natural or automatic. So my friend talked about lifestyle as a set of rules that you create for yourself. When you want to make a change to your life, all you really have to do is simply change or replace an existing rule. Now, when you're just chatting about this over lunch, it sounds so easy to do, but I think in practice, it's much more difficult, right? If you want to make a change to your life, just change your rule. Well, rules are hard, aren't they? So what is your lifestyle? What are the decisions that you make? So what is your lifestyle? What are the decisions that you make that result in your style of life. What's one new rule for yourself that you think would have the most dramatic impact on your personal lifestyle if you were to adopt it? Now, this is a question that I'm asking myself, too. You know, I'm a designer at heart. I'm fascinated by and and I've made a study of things like graphic design and experience design and, of course, instructional design, which is my field. But I've never really thought about designing a lifestyle. I do love the idea of that, though. You know, instead of just letting my life happen to me, taking a deliberate approach to making something new of it. Well, and the new year has just started, so I guess this is a really good time to be thinking about this kind of thing. What a great project to design a whole new life. Okay, so I guess that's our assignment for the next two weeks. (laughs) I'm kidding. I think in some small way, we're making a lifestyle choice just in working through our book, our Take a Look at Yourself book. We're making a deliberate choice about what we're putting into our heads and what we're spending our time doing, right? There's a million things we could be doing right now instead of reading this little book together. So I guess that's a good start, right? Well, let's talk about our book. If you're just joining us, or you have just found my little show by accident, welcome. I am so glad that you're here. We're reading a book together, chapter by chapter, that I found several years ago at an old bookshop. The book is called Take a Look at Yourself, and it's by a gentleman uh, with the name of John Homer Miller. Now, I don't know anything about Miller, and honestly, I don't really know very much about this book. I couldn't find any background on it. But I do know that it was written in 1943, it was published during the war era, so World War II was in swing, and it's been out of print for some time. I don't know how long, it just, I couldn't find it anywhere. I haven't read this book in advance, so I'm reading it right along with all of you as I'm reading it to you, so we're kind of discovering it together. We're on chapter six, so if you want to read the earlier chapters and then come back for this one, you can do that. Or you can jump in right here. You can do whatever you'd like. There are no rules here. Well, let's start with a recap of chapter five, shall we? So that one was entitled The Value of Little Things. And you probably remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I just really loved this chapter. I thought it was a beautiful little chapter. In this one, Miller taught us that one of the most important things that we can do in our lives is focus on doing small things very well. And his main points included the following. He said, Large things are composed of many small things. So if we do the small things well, the effects can be very large indeed. He also said that frequently the degree of difference between small things and great things is so infinitesimal that it's noticed only by God Himself. So we don't have to feel bad if we're not tackling the big things, because the difference between the big and the small things is not necessarily all that wide. It's not that big of a difference. And then finally, don't worry about changing the world. Just look for where you have influence in your own life and focus on the things that you can do, and then do them well. Okay, well, that leads us to Chapter 6, Overcoming a Sense of Inferiority. (music) Chapter 6, Overcoming a Sense of Inferiority. The central problem of most people is their feeling of inadequacy for life. How many of us have been almost overwhelmed with an appalling sense of inferiority? Often college students, for example, give the impression that they're a superior, self-confident lot. Yet a recent psychological investigation among college students revealed that over 90% of them suffer from an overwhelming sense of inadequacy. The feeling of inferiority has dogged the steps of many a great man. Think of Sir Walter Scott. We consider his Ivanhoe one of the best tales ever written. Yet what a discouraged young man Sir Walter Scott was, for he wanted to be a poet. As he saw Lord Byron rise in public esteem, Scott's reported to have said, Byron hits the mark every time, whereas I don't even pretend to fledge my arrow. In his early years, Scott was so overwhelmed with the feeling of inferiority that he was ashamed of his first writings and published some of them anonymously. Our kind of civilization tends to accentuate and increase the sense of inadequacy for life. You're more out on your own today, thrown back upon yourself, forced to stand upon your own feet, find your significance and security within yourself. While great multitudes of people thrown back upon themselves can't stand the strain— and with all their outward security gone, they have no resources of stability within. I believe that right here we find one of the major explanations of the rise of dictatorships in the modern world. Dictators promise to the individual security and significance in return for his undivided allegiance, loyalty, and obedience. Great masses of people, feeling themselves totally inadequate for life and allowing themselves to be caught up in the sweep of a great movement, acquire a feeling of significance which is unbelievable to us. In any event, one of the greatest determining influences upon your character is the way you handle this sense of inadequacy. Some people try to overcome their inner sense of inadequacy by fleeing into a world of fantasy and illusion. They become in daydreaming what they cannot be in actual life. The reason many people become habitual drunkards is to overcome their feeling of inferiority. Through drink, they become what they can't be when they're sober. By drink or daydreaming, a man is able to lift himself out of his actual limitations and into the comforting illusion of greatness and grandeur. But such methods of handling a sense of inferiority lead to only a temporary glory, and without peace. Still other people attempt to overcome their sense of inadequacy by doing as the fox did in Aesop's fable. They belittle everything that seems to be beyond their reach, anything that's superior to them. They attempt to lift themselves up by pulling other people down. In depreciation and criticism of others, they make themselves feel that they're not so inferior after all. When you're unkindly criticized, you would do well to remember the words of Sibelius, that grand old music master of Finland. One day, as he was bidding farewell to a young student about to launch out on his own career, the young man expressed concern regarding the treatment he might suffer at the hands of unkind critics. Don't let that trouble you, said Sibelius, And then with a sly wink, he added, Remember, there has never yet been set up a statue to a critic. Other people handle their feeling of inferiority by going to the unbelievable extreme of depreciating themselves, simply for the purpose of calling attention to themselves. Hadfield, the English psychologist, tells of a lady at a bridge table who kept saying, Oh, how stupid I am, how stupid I am. As a matter of fact, she was playing better bridge than anyone else at the table. The third time she had said, How stupid I am. Her partner spoke up and said, Well, why trouble to mention the fact, whereupon the woman left the room in a rage? Her pretended stupidity was merely a technique to call attention to herself and to her superiority over the other players. Her real attitude toward herself was revealed only when she was taken seriously. Well, those are some of the pathetic, tragic, and even humorous ways in which people try to handle their sense of inferiority. But now comes the question of how this central problem can be successfully handled. One way that you can do this is to accept yourself as you are, to give up trying to be something that you're not. You see, one of the major causes of our feelings of inferiority is the deep desire we all have to be something we're not. The central thing, therefore, in handling this sense of inferiority is to try to see yourself as you actually are and to get a proper attitude about yourself in relationship to other people. The least of us can say, I can't do everything, but I can do something, and I'm going to do it with all my mind, heart, and soul. In the great scheme of things, whoever you are, there is only one of you. Among all the millions of people who have ever lived, are now living, or ever will live, there never has been, and never will be, anyone just like you. There is one place that only you can fill. There is something that only you can do. That is the only healthy-minded way to look at yourself in the face of life's unequal endowments. When you attempt to be something other than what you are, you get yourself out of focus. Life puts you on the defensive. You begin to feel sorry for yourself. You become hypersensitive, easily hurt, envious, and jealous your attitude becomes negative rather than positive. It's mightily important to see yourself as you actually are, an proper relationship to other people. The second thing we can do to overcome our feelings of inferiority is to become interested in something greater than ourselves. Only when you begin standing for something bigger than yourself do you get your ego in the proper place. The trouble with most inferior people is that they have their ego on their hands, It stands out like a sore thumb, oversensitive, easily hurt. They live, as it were, in a room of mirrors. Whichever way they look, they see nothing but themselves. So, is it any wonder that they are oversensitive and easily hurt? When you lose yourself for something greater than yourself, your ego recedes out of sight, and your life acquires a significance which you need not try to assume. Jesus knew this need when he said, Whosoever will lose his life for my sake will save himself. Many people don't realize that until he was 45, Abraham Lincoln was one of the most disappointed and depressed men that ever lived. There were those who said that melancholy dripped from him as he walked. He felt that his life was of no significance, that he would never do anything worthwhile in this world. But then he became interested in the slavery question and he lost himself in its importance. His life acquired a significance and a worthwhileness of which he had never dreamed. He was literally reborn. A correspondent of the Boston Daily Transcript, writing October 13, 1858, described Abraham Lincoln as he saw him in one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. He wrote, Lincoln is a tall, lank man, awkward, and apparently diffident. But when he spoke... He was no longer awkward or ungainly. He was graceful, bold, commanding. For about forty minutes he spoke with a power we have seldom heard equaled. There was a grandeur in his thoughts, a comprehensiveness in his arguments, and a blinding force in his conclusions which were perfectly irresistible. The vast throng was as silent as death. Every eye was fixed upon the speaker— and all gave him serious attention. The more you lose yourself in something greater than yourself, the more humble you become, the less inferior you feel. The less your ego stands out to be easily hurt and humiliated, the more confident you become. Your chief glory should be to make your life, however humble and inferior it may seem, the finest and the best. Having that glory, you will have everything. You'll have no need of being envious or jealous of anyone or anything else in the world. You'll have within you a feeling of security and significance which only belongs to those who live in and for the approval of God. So what did you think of that chapter? This subject of inferiority is of great personal interest to me because I believe Miller's right. I think this is something with which almost everyone struggles, even those who seem most sure of themselves. You might have heard of the imposter syndrome. You know, that's where people who've attained a certain level of success start to feel that they're a fraud or that they'll eventually be found out for what they are, which is Someone who's over their head and capable of the task before them, unworthy of the, of the position that they're in. I've seen this in my professional life a hundred times at least. And then you have people who, as Miller describes, will go to great lengths to hide even from themselves the feeling that they're afraid or inadequate. And all of this leads to some pretty crazy behavior. And I think we have probably all seen some of this in our own lives over the last year. So let's remember Miller's remedy here. He said this remember who you are. You have unique abilities, and you're here to play a role that only you can play. God has given you just what you need. So you don't have to try to be someone or something that you're not. And then take an interest in something greater than yourself. Okay, well, that does it for chapter six. Wow, next time we're going to be up to chapter seven. And that one is, let me see, mastering your emotions. That sounds like a good one, doesn't it? Okay, well, hey, thanks for joining me this week. I hope you'll stop by in a couple of Sundays so we can continue on this journey together. Bye for now, and I'll see you soon.